Well, good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. Hey, one adjustment. I'm not sure what that sounded like. That singles ministry gathering sounded like to you, but it's not today. It's next Sunday. The tailgating for the singles at the cake man's house is next Sunday. It's not today. I guess you could show up at his house if you'd like anyway today, you know, and just pop in on cake man. He's pretty hospitable. Probably be cool. I'm sure he'll be watching the game. Anybody, any chance there's anybody here pulling for Cleveland today? Just wanted to see if there's anybody who would admit that today. I did see Paul Irons this morning. Where's Paul at? Is he, is he outside? He, Paul could be a little confused today. Paul is a native New Orleanian, but Paul played for the Cleveland Browns, if you didn't know that. So feel sorry for him today if you see him. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We hope you're going to get a chance to feel sorry for him today. <laughs> uh, one other announcement. Uh, Phil Widener's sister, Peggy, died this past week, and uh, arrangements are being made for the whole family. You know, just the, the challenges of Peggy was very much involved in caring for Phil's mom, and she is it's always challenged when the mom outlives the child. You know, she's 98, and... Uh, had to hear news that her daughter uh, uh, passed away this past week. So please pray for the family and the arrangements that they have to make uh, for the funeral. And we'll keep you informed on some details on that. If you'll turn in your word to Acts chapter 20, we have pressed a little bit of a pause button here. uh, And I, I think we're justified by the fact that Paul, the apostle, pressed the pause button on his return leg of his third missionary journey on his way back to Jerusalem. And he, and he derailed that return trip in order to have a special meeting with the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And so Paul, on his way, returning by ship, stops in Miletus. I think I got a map up here to help you see some of that. Stops in Miletus. There you can see Ephesus right there towards the middle of the map there. So he passes up Ephesus, he goes to Miletus, and then he calls for the elders in Ephesus to come to him to a meeting. So I've intentionally arranged the auditorium a little differently here today. So everybody around the edges, you get to live in Ephesus. And this little section right here is Miletus. And so they're set apart. And I'll explain more about that in just a minute. But in this section, we have asked the elders of our church, pastors of our church, and our covenant group leaders to sit in this section today. Because I want to preach to us as leaders today. I want us to pay particular attention to what Paul spoke to, the charge that he gives them, and the call that existed in leaders' lives. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sloppying up Paul's passage here. He was much cleaner. He just called the elders to himself in Ephesus. And so I've not just called the elders into this section here. I've got pastors and I've got covenant group leaders who are here. And I, just, and I don't want to teach on all that this morning. I just do want to make one important clarifying comment. There is an importance that within God's structure of leadership, uh, there are very few people who carry authority in the church. 
there are a lot of people who carry influence. And if you've grown up in the church, you ought to be grateful for both. Those who are given authority in the church, they have the right and they have the call and the mandate by God to make decisions about the local church, about its emphasis, its ministry, its direction, things that they're going to do and caring for people. And that's right. Just like God has established authority in a variety of places in our society, God has done that in the church as well. So there's not authority scattered throughout the church. There's authority located in a very small group of leaders. But there's influence located in the lives of others and I don't know if you're like me. When I look back over my Christian life, it wasn't just the guys with authority who had profound effects on my life. As a matter of fact, I look back on the guys who had authority and, and they might be challenged or rivaled by the fact that there were some people who had influence in my life, not authority, but influence by their example, by their teaching and by how they led, cared for others. That was formative and shaping in my soul. And so I, I thought it was important that we would have both those with authority, as well as those that we have given roles in the church who have influence in, in our lives as a body uh, to be a part of Miletus, the gathering in Miletus. And it just probably also shows that Paul's smarter than me. Paul called a smaller group. I complicated things by calling a larger group together here in Miletus for our meeting. But if you back up with me into the passage here, let's, let's get some thoughts in front of us from what Paul did. Let's back up to verse 15, let's read this passage together. It says, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, 
fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Lord, it's always curious, and it should be always curious to us, that not everything that could have been recorded was recorded in your word. But Lord, this was recorded. And we understand it's written down for our benefit, for our strengthening, for insight, for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. Lord, you have recorded these words to affect our souls. And so, Lord, we ask for eyes that can see and ears that can hear. Lord, what a a tragedy when the church gathers and we have not ears to hear. So, Lord, be merciful to us today. Let our ears perk up and be receptive. Let our eyes be wide open to what you have put on display here in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. John Piper speaks in this, of this passage when he says, this helps put Paul's word here in the right light. He's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and he's cutting it close. He's in a boat well out to sea. He seems to be in charge of the itinerary, and he orders the captain to navigate into the Miletus Harbor, sends a messenger over the 20-mile or so trek back to Ephesus, and waits for the elders of the church so that he can say to them what we read here in Acts 20. In fact, or the fact that Paul would go to this much trouble to give this message to the elders of the church personally, and the fact that Luke would pause in his story and record the words for us, make them very wonderful words to me. I'm deeply moved by this speech They show us much of Paul's heart as well as his theology and his view of leadership. Now, why were these words so important? Well, one answer, the one that we focus on today, is that the future of the Ephesian church hangs on how its elders serve the Lord. And that's what Paul talks about here. No doubt. Paul would have loved to see the whole church in Ephesus, but his strength and schedule dictated that he limit himself to the one thing that was indispensable, talking to the elders of the church. The one thing that was indispensable. I think that's a good word to use in association with godly biblical leadership. 
Godly, biblically ordained leadership is indispensable. And being intentional about learning and growing in leadership is important. Listen, where we live in a setting where there is opposition that is active in this world, there is human weakness that is throughout this room in every person, and there is sin that dwells in each one of us. This, this subject is indispensable to us. It is vitally important to our lives. Why, why these men in this passage? Why, why does Paul send an invitation to a select limited group of people. He doesn't just say, hey, everybody in Ephesus that would like to come, all you guys, hey, we'd love this to be together. It's, it's, it's no, no, no. Just these individuals here are who I would seek to meet with. Verse 28. To these same individuals, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There there is a supernatural governance in God that somehow in ways that the details are not always spelled out, God ordains by the Holy Spirit to set leaders in place. Why these men? They were the most popular. They were the wealthiest people in the church. They were the most verbal people in the church, the noisiest ones. What? No, they were the ones that Paul recognized the Holy Spirit has put his hands upon these and has made them to lead. Those are the ones that he's calling to this meeting. And that's informative for us. Leaders get in place in the church by the work of the Holy Spirit. They, they are not the product of self-ambition, of politicking, of force, of personality. We, we might tend to believe that perhaps that is the case, but you know, it'd be interesting if you get to know the variety of guys, even for us that lead. Uh, there'd be a variety of descriptions in personality and presence and capacity, etc. God sets in place leaders. It's his doing. This becomes an awkward topic when leaders steer off course, when leaders wreck ships on the shoreline, when readers, leaders make bad decisions, when leaders produce bad fruit, when leaders are confusing, when leaders lack influence and things get off course in the church, when mistakes are made or when intentional corruption is in place for leaders. Leadership becomes a hostile topic. Leadership becomes something that most of us listen to on our heels. And in today's age, leadership gets discussed. It gets discussed publicly. It gets debated. There are a flood of opinions. It is a nasty subject for some. It is being defined not, listen carefully, not by what you read in the Bible, but by what your personal bad experience leads you to say about it. Now, all of us have had experiences in life. 
But don't make this mistake in every category. And I mean it for leadership, but I mean it for every category of our lives. All of us have had experience growing up in a household and being a child and having parents. And that wasn't always done real well. There's some interesting stories in this room for those of us who were raised a certain way by people who were a certain way. Be, be tempting for us to jettison any form of a concept of parental oversight and responsibility for a family based on our own experience. But, but yet the Bible doesn't do that, does it? The Bible doesn't give you permission because your experience as a child growing up at home was bad to jettison what it says about parenting. You are in a marriage and that's not being done well. Husband's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Wife's not doing what she's supposed to be doing. Your personal experience might be a bad advertisement for marriage. But your personal experience doesn't give you or anybody else permission to jettison what the Bible says about husbands and wives. Now, this is true as we get into the world of the church as well. Husbands do the wrong things. Parents do the wrong things. Government officials do the wrong things. Pastors and elders, leaders do the wrong things. How do we deal with it when that happens? I've I've watched a very bizarre thing happen in the last many years. If God's appointing people to lead and that leadership goes bad, let's jettison that and let's do this. Let's create people who are selected by a more democratic process. You know, let's have leaders who, you know, some of them represent the people who are over 50 and some of them represent women and some of them represent this group and that section. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Well, you know, that makes sense when you're an American. That makes sense if your view of leadership is this. Leaders exist to represent us. That's why leaders exist, which in America, that is why leaders exist, right? We're a republic. People are put in place by, uh, by election. We vote on them because they represent our view. Now, now do the math. Don't, don't over-romanticize this because it sounds like that fixes something, doesn't it? It's, we want representative leadership. We want to have a voice in those who lead. All right, this is how that voice operates in our country before we think this is a great idea. Now, governmentally for our country, I like it better than any of the other ideas in the world. But this is how it works, Right? Guy runs for office, typically, less than 50% of the population who could vote shows up to vote. Let that convict those of you who are not registered voters. And then 50% of that gathering is all it takes to put that guy in office. So what you end up with sometimes is 26% of the population choosing the person who leads. So 26% of people agreed with him. You represent us. But he may not be representing 74% of the rest of you. But he was put there by the people. Doesn't that make you feel better? It doesn't, does it? See, now, now here's the thing about godly leadership in the church. Godly leadership in the church is, is not here to represent sections of the church, segments of the church, people with a view this way versus that way, or strong feelings or experiences in life and categories of life. Godly leadership is always put in place to represent God's view. 
Responsibility of leaders is to represent God's view, not people's view. Now, the great thing about that, because that sounds like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to like that. Well, the only reason why we wouldn't like that is if we think that God doesn't have your best in mind. God's got a way of doing life. He's got a way of doing church. It's his way. And, and he takes into account young and old, single, wi- widows, divorced, people in conflict, people trapped in sin, people walking in rebellion. God's got something in mind for every one of us in the household of God. And all leaders need to do is just represent God. Now, I freely admit that's not always done well by leaders. And it won't always be done well here. But it is God's way. It is God's system. Let's not invent another system. Let's not, especially not invent one that ends up representing 26% of the people. And has a certain category of passion in a certain location. That, that's not a cure for bad leadership. Now, I, I've asked these guys to sit separate this morning. Not because I'm necessarily trying to have them communicate to everybody else here that, that they are separate and distinct from the rest of you. Because they bear the label leader. I think there was a leader on that little podium thing back there. You have to be a leader to sit in this section. So, Although, quite honestly, I am for their sake and for yours, very much trying to get you to see that they are separate and distinct in the church. And this passage screams that. It is an exclusive passage. Undoubtedly, Paul's endearing relationship with the Ephesian church is going to get back to the Ephesian church that Paul passed by and he didn't invite all of us to meet with him. He didn't stop in Ephesus and visit us. The guy spent three years with us. He and I were tight. Why did you get to go? Why why do you people get to go? Well, argue all you want. It's in the Bible, right? There was a strategic reason that was significant for Paul to recognize that there are people set in the church who have a distinct and separate role. And, and, and I, I will say this, I'll say this for the sake of everybody seated here and anybody who ever will seat in this location in the future. If, if leaders don't appropriately recognize that you're called in a unique and specific and intentional and purposeful way, then, then I can almost promise you, you are not leading. You're just traveling with the herd. And as we said last week, God installs leadership for a reason. Leadership matters. God uses leadership. You you cannot travel with the herd. You're called to lead. You're called to be aware of where you're standing amongst people. You're called to be aware of your influence in people's lives. You're called to live in a particular manner amongst those people. And that's Paul's first concern in this passage, right? wants to pay attention to how Paul charges these leaders, right? We, we looked through some things earlier in this passage, and I wanted us to pick up in verse 28. 
Paul's charge to leaders. Paul has spoken about his own life. I'm going to go back to that in a second. But Paul's charge to leaders sounds this way. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay careful attention, leaders, and anyone who will ever lead in the body of Christ. Pay careful attention. Don't go to sleep on the job. Don't get so comfortable doing this. Don't get so familiar with the lay of the land. And I'm gonna, I want to say to us as a group of leaders this morning, the lay of the land is changing. It's been changing. It's radically changing just in the last five years. And you're called to pay careful attention. You're called to be able to tell me. I said that to you. You're called to be able to tell me, how is it changing? I don't know. Pay careful attention. Know something about the context in which the church exists, the things that are affecting it, so that we can lead and protect and care for people the way this passage highlights that we should. Paul's first charge to leaders is to pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Leaders must be self-aware and self-monitoring. Galatians chapter 6, Paul would say this elsewhere. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, so he's talking to mature, he's talking to influential people in the church, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Listen, those who are going to care for the body of Christ, you're going to find that part of your lifestyle is digging through the rubble of fallen humanity. That's what you do. You know, when, when the doctors and the missionaries who have gone to Africa to care for people with Ebola show up, they, they are very careful, aren't they? Because they are aware this is a live virus and it is aggressive and it finds its way into lives. Be very careful. Listen, sin, uh, Ebola is nothing compared to sin. Sin is quite a live virus. And as you sort through the issues of sin and the rubble of fallen humanity, be very careful for yourselves as you do that. First Timothy chapter 4. Paul spoke to Timothy as a young leader. He said, keep a close watch, Timothy, on yourself and on teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Leaders are called, and this this is an important word. This is a very, very, very important word for our future. Leaders are called to persist in being leaders. To not give up. To not quit. To not let the many, many reasons that are available to you, that scream at you to quit, to not let them prevail. Because your leading matters. Right? Persist in these things because by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. You you are having a saving and sanctifying effect upon the lives of others. Please persist 
in what you're doing is vitally important to the health of the body of Christ. As I look at Paul's life, and I think his life provides a vehicle for us to pay attention to ourselves. This is what Paul was living as a leader. I think these are the categories that we're to pay attention to ourselves. So pay attention that you are one, from verse 19, you're in people's lives as a servant. That's why you're in their lives. You're in people's lives as a servant. Now, these first two should rescue the church from this sense of, oh, well, the, the special club. The end club, these are the people who probably, you know, they're treated like they're important. They get special treatment like they're important. They're held out. They've got titles, play a role in the church. That probably goes to their head. Uh, Well, maybe that's why Paul installs these kinds of words for leaders. Maybe that's why any of us who lead should have front row seats for paying attention that I'm aware that I'm in people's lives as a servant. I'm here to serve. Servants, servants have a wonderful freedom in some ways because servants don't own anything. They work for the owner. They serve the owner. The owner has all the interest. The owner suffers the losses and he appreciates the gains. The servant just serves. He doesn't have that weight on him. Be careful that you don't let that weight get on you. You're, you're, just, you're just here to serve. I'm just here to serve in the body of Christ. I don't own anything here, but it's tempting. And I can hear these words build up in our lives. There's an effect upon serving that is weighty and discouraging, frustrating, right? I, this quote here from C. John Miller went by the name Jack Miller. Jack was a pastor, uh, mentor, influential man in many, many lives. And yet he experienced some of the burnout that goes with losing sight of the fact that you're called as a servant to just take up your interest in the glory of God and the glory of God alone. This first paragraph, his daughter is recording this in the front of a book called The Heart of a Servant Leader, where she says, it was his desire to live and work for the glory of God that led Jack to become a church planner and a pastor. But after 20 years of full-time Christian ministry, Jack found out how easy it is to lose that essential focus on God's glory and to end up depressed and burned out. He faced this kind of crisis in the spring of 1970 while he was pastoring a small church in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and teaching practical theology at Westminster Seminary. He had gradually become frustrated in both jobs. It seemed to him that neither the church members nor the seminary students were changing in the ways that they should. And he did not know how to help them. In desperation, he resigned from both positions and then spent the next few weeks too depressed to do anything except cry. Gradually, during those weeks, it became clear to him that the reason for his anger and disappointment was his own wrong motivation for ministry. He realized that instead of being motivated only by God's glory, he was hoping for personal glory and the approval of those he was serving. He said that when he repented of his pride, fear of people, and love of their approval, his joy in ministry returned. 
and he took back his resignations from the church and the seminary. Listen, it, it, is, it is very tempting in serving to find some kind of fulfillment, some kind of reward, some form of appreciation. And, and, and the moment you do that, you move from being a leader to being a user. You begin to use people for how they will make you feel. You feel affirmed. You feel important. You feel that your life is meaningful. You feel like you're doing something that matters. But if you yoke those things to people's lives and how they behave, what will you do in the day when they misbehave, when they don't follow your leading, when they don't appreciate your input, when they resist you, when they slander you like they did Paul? What do you do in that day? Well, leadership becomes very frustrating, disillusioning, unrewarding. It costs you something that you now wish it weren't costing you. Frustrating, angry. Listen, if anybody who's going to lead is going to persist, this recipe needs to follow us around. When he repented of his pride, his fear of people, and the love of their approval, his joy returned. You want to serve in leading joyfully. Pay careful attention to yourselves in those categories. Later on, he wrote a letter to a young woman who was serving on the mission field. She was having a hard time in her serving. And he would write letters. This is a, the whole book is just a, a publishing of his letters to encourage people who were in ministry. He said, remember what Florence Alshorn said about saving the situation? She learned that she could always be a positive person of faith when she didn't care two hoots about what happened to me. Once she became dedicated to fostering Christ's love in others and helping with their welfare, she was free from the burden of a hard, unyielding ego. Listen, that's just, that's just sound, lovely advice for every one of us. Because every one of us walked in here today fighting and battling a, an unyielding ego. I want this thing to be about me. And every day that unyielding ego shows up and advertises new ways that today can be about me. But, you know, once we get to that place where I don't give two hoots about what happens to me, what a liberating day that is. Listen, there's no greater liberation. I don't know what it is that you're hoping to be free of in your life, but ain't no greater liberation than being free from yourself in all the world. To be able to be in other people's lives not controlled by who they will or won't be to you next. In your families, in your friendships, in the church, as leaders, to not be controlled by who are people going to be to me? How are they going to support me, appreciate me, and give me my reward? What a liberating thing to not need that from them and to not crave it from them either. It will be a means of persisting in serving as leaders. Pay careful attention to yourselves that you are humble in how you carry out your leadership and influence. Paul said he served with humility. Listen, uh, humility is, 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 a, is a powerful thing. It's a little bit of a challenging thing to work into our lives, but it's got, it's got two basic ingredients. 
So if you don't, if you don't travel down this road, I don't think you'll experience humility. It has an accurate view of the greatness of God in sight, and it has an accurate view of ourselves in sight. Now, this first one is critical because it, it gives scale to things. You ever stand in front of something and take a picture and you kind of want to get a scale? Hey, hey go, go stand by that. Why, why do you do that? Because people have a reference point then. They know that you're six feet tall and that thing is 86 feet tall. And I couldn't tell by a picture until you stood in the picture. All right, well, you and I can't tell how tall we are until God stands in the picture with us. And what a lesson that is, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's providing scale. Right, so if I could just kick God out of the picture, uh, the temptation is to put smaller people in the picture with me. Let me find people who are smaller than me in my favorite categories, and, and I'll look big. I'll be impressive. But then you, you put God in the picture with you, and instantly all the impressiveness just evaporates, doesn't it? See, humility is found when God is rightly found in the picture. And we are rightly seen in his shadow. That's where humility comes from. John Piper, speaking of this humility, says, Lowliness or humility is first a feeling toward God that he has absolute rights over your life. That he can do with you as he pleases. And that he has absolute authority to tell you what is best for you. And that's just fine with you. It is a spirit of utter yieldedness and submissiveness to the Lord as master. Clay in the potter's hands. Second, lowliness means feeling indebted to all people because of how graciously God has treated us. Listen, I think an accurate understanding of grace, if a church is preaching grace... The way it is in the Bible, a byproduct of grace should be an obsession with humility. Because grace makes us stand and scratch our heads every day, wondering, Lord, why am I included among your people? As leaders, it doesn't put us in a posture to say, what is wrong with these people in Ephesus? Sure, glad we had this meeting in Melita so we could talk about those stinking people over there in Ephesus. What is wrong with them? Why won't they get it together? Why are they so slow to respond? Do you know I've been leading a small group for blah, 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 and then people are still just like they were five years ago and ten years ago. Listen, that, that might be an accurate statement. It's, it's the humility that's missing that's the concern. The ability for us to stand in the frame next to God and see just how much we are setting the pace and how impressive we are in the areas that we don't do real well in. He says, lowliness is feeling indebted to all people because of how graciously God has treated us. It's the opposite of feeling that everybody owes you something, owes you an ear, owes you strokes, owes you time. Lowliness says, I am a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish, to friend and foe. Lowliness does not think in terms of its rights. It empties itself and takes the form of a servant and becomes obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Pay attention to our lowliness. 
to how we serve humbly. Third, pay attention that you own people's lives and the value of the ministry to such a degree that it produces tears and trials. I don't, I don't think Paul could have experienced the tears and the trials without first owning the ministry the way he did. He owned people's lives. He owned what was happening with them, the good that he was called to see fostered in their lives. I don't think this is Paul whining, tears and trials, whining, because he just doesn't like the way it's going. No, 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 that's not Paul here. This is tears and trials because of his deep love for the purpose of God amongst the people of God. He experienced tears and trials. John Piper says, tears can come from physical pain or from heart-rending loss or from unbearable frustrations and discouragements or from intense yearning or from overwhelming joy. I think that we should, what we should learn is that serving the Lord means getting so intensely involved in people's struggles that you cry over them. And we don't do this when we ask guys to lead in the church. Maybe we should, but I think it would reduce our pool. If we featured these vocabulary words, y'all remember that? I like vocabulary words. Maybe it's a habit I got in about second or third grade. Remember you'd read a story and it featured the four or five new vocabulary words before you'd read it? Well, what if we just featured these as we'd love for you to consider helping to lead the church. Here's your new vocabulary words. Pain. Loss, frustrations, discouragements, yearning, and overwhelming joy. And now let's read the story. <laughs> that, that, is, that is what you experience. It is what you experience when you own people's lives and their well-being. When what happens to them matters to you. It's the vocabulary of our experience when we brush up against suffering and trials and tragedy and brokenness and sin and hard-headedness and hard-heartedness in people and the outcome that we see in their lives as we have walked and encouraged and been patient and prayed for and we hear a report or someone's gone missing, their life is in horrible condition, some tragedy has struck in the midst of that. I, you know, this is, this is not said a lot, probably needs to be soberly said because I think it, it rescues leadership from this fun club to be a part of. If, if you start owning the ministry and the care for people the way that I think the Bible calls leaders to own it, at some point, I don't know how long it'll take you to get here, but at some point, you're going to scratch your head and wonder if you want to keep doing this. And if you're just cruising, it's like, oh, I don't ever have that, I don't ever have that thought. Uh, you may be too far away from people to feel the weight of their lives. Because if, if, if you awaken on a regular basis with somebody's life sitting on top of your life. I mean, I know you guys have got your own life. 
at your own issues, get your own challenges. But to take up people's lives means their burdens begin to share weight with yours. And their realities begin to affect how you're feeling about this week and today. And, and it will produce tears and trials. You know, there are days, and this is not a helpful dimension to living with me, but it is one that my wife has to put up with. There's days that just Keith just looks like he's in a fog. He just looks like he's somewhere else. And in some ways, I probably am. Because people's lives have weight and there are concerns and there's a desire for rescue to occur or repentance or change or growth or strengthening to emerge in their lives. And you feel the weight of that. Paul, Paul said this after arguing, remember 2 Corinthians is Paul arguing with those who were naysayers about him. After he's presented this resume of all that I've been through, all the beatings and stonings and shipwrecks, blah, blah, blah. Remember all that big long list? Remember, this is Paul having to defend himself. This is him having to make a case for the fact that, hey, I I really do care about people, okay? I know the super apostles say that that I don't, but I really do. And I've been through this and this and this and this. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who, Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made the fall and I'm not indignant? See, experiencing the weight of people's lives is part of leading them. And, you know, if you don't ever experience that, you can never lead them well. Because you, you've built a fence and you've kept yourself at a safe distance. Listen, if you, God's calling you to lead, it's not safe. This is not a safe invitation. This is a difficult invitation. And it will exact the price on you. I'm looking around at some of your faces and I know some of you have been beat up by leading. It's not because you were out of bounds. It's because you're doing what God's called you to do, to face tears and trials, frustrations and even despair that Paul faced, you will experience as well. Pay attention, number four, that you are courageous and discerning. Look in verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He says that again, down in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So you get this double-edged sword here of Paul saying, when I didn't shrink, I, I said what I needed to say. I said what was weighty. Sometimes what was controversial, sometimes what got me in hot water with a Greek group or a Gentile or a Jewish group. But I said what I needed to say. There was courage in Paul's leadership. But he also said what was profitable and what was the whole counsel of God. And so I, I want to, you know, the cor- courage is courage. Right? Courage means not being controlled by our, our love of appreciation or our fear of man. Courage is courage. But I want to highlight in this passage that, that leaders need to know something when they lead. Leaders lead with knowledge. It's, it's the most obvious thing. You might read past it too quickly. The most obvious thing that's happening in Scripture is people are being taught. That's the most obvious thing in Scripture. They are experiencing signs and wonders, but they are having their minds 
changed. They are having their minds renewed. This is a mind renewal book. It is trying to get us to see life from the creator's perspective. So that's what we do among one another. We, we bring the perspective of God. So that's why Paul is able to say, I taught what was profitable. And I taught the whole counsel of God. And just teach a few favorite lines that I have. And this is a very tempting thing. This is a very tempting thing, especially if you are a leader who's got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of categories in life. It can become very tempting to find three or four favorite areas of the Christian life, Christian doctrine. And whenever somebody presses your play button, that's what comes out of you all the time. You always bring people back to that. No matter what they're experiencing, you bring them back to this subject because that's your specialty. It's okay. All of us understand some things more than others. But Paul said, I, I, I didn't shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. So there's a responsibility for us that, that leaders are called to handle truth a certain way. Right? I mean, I don't know how I'd spell that out. I need to know. Obviously, we need to know the gospel and be clear on its centrality. We need to know the implications of the gospel in man's lives. Uh, We need to know the whys of people's lives. Why do people do what they do? Paul calls the elders to himself. I would install this. Elders, I believe, elders in Scripture carry with them a, a life experience component. It's why the word elder, I think, is used. Not novices in life. Elders are responsible to understand the way people tick. Because if you're going to bring truth to bear on people's lives, you've got to kind of know where their lives are. You've got to understand the whys of people's lives. You have to understand the geography or the land of humanity. People live today a certain way. Right? We, we live in American suburbs. You, you are caring for people that are living in a modern technological age. You need to know something about that so that you can counsel people with the word of God, which means leaders need to know things. Albert Moeller, a section in his book, The Conviction to Lead, called Leaders Are Readers. He says, as a general rule, cliches are to be avoided. The statement that leaders are readers is an exception to that rule. When you find a leader, you have found a reader. The reason for this is simple. There is no substitute for effective reading when it comes to developing and maintaining the intelligence necessary to lead. Leadership requires a constant flow of intelligence, ideas, and information. There is no way to gain the basics of leaderships without reading. Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says, The leader who intends to grow spiritually and intellectually will be reading constantly. The spiritual leader must master God's word and its principles and know as well the minds of those who look to the leader for guidance. To do so, the leader must have an active life of reading. Guys, there's just no escape in this category. And I I know, and I feel the, the tension of so many books, so little time. But somehow, in the same way that we carve out time to exercise, maybe some of you guys do that, looking around. Not all of you are doing that, but I get that. I'm with you. Um, Carve out time to get a haircut. Carve out time to eat a meal. We carve out time for things. As leaders, 
we have to carve out time to read for our minds to constantly be renewed, challenged, informed, both in biblical truth and in the way in which humanity needs this biblical truth. And if you don't get both, and you guys remember we studied through that this past summer uh, with the study that we did, about recognizing the collision that's between the truth of God's word and the needs of people's souls. But we get that by reading. I hope that was a helpful time this summer to study through that together. But that's a constant thing that we're called to do. Leaders are called to be readers. All right, last two there. Pay careful attention to yourselves that you are living a surrendered life. When Paul says, I did not count my life as valuable or as precious to me. He didn't, he didn't have a valued agenda for himself. If I could only do this, if I could only live this way, if I could only have this lifestyle and this activity, that's what I really want. The second that creeps into your world, you and God will go on a tug of war. Because there are moments where God calls you to lead in a way that interferes with that. So the only way to lead is to be in a posture that says, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm just here to go and do whatever it is you've called me to go and do. You know, I, hands off the controls. I'm surrendered to you. I'm trusting in you. My purpose for the future is whatever you have for me. That's how Paul provided an example for these guys. And the last one is just what the last one is. Pay attention to yourself that you are being responsible and working hard. Right? That's what Paul said, I think, when he was saying, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. In verse 35, he says, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard, by working hard, there's, there's just no other way to say it. Leading is working hard. If it's being done well and it's being done right, it is exhausting challenging. It's hard work. It's as hard of work as you're doing in any other category in your life. But it's valuable work. And it's important work for the people that God's called us to care for and to protect, which is what he turns his attention to next. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And I'm just going to do this real brief- briefly. Pay careful attention to all the flock. Now, I don't think Paul means here all the flock in all the Christian universe, every Christian who exists on every shore and in every church everywhere. Obviously, that's not the context of what he's saying. He has called a group of people who are responsible for a small geography of believers who live in the area of Ephesus. And when he says, pay careful attention to all the flock. And this is a challenge. This is a challenge because this is an encouragement to all of us that are sitting in Ephesus, not just those in Miletus today. Do you you live in such a way that it's possible and doable and functional for the leaders and those with influence to pay attention to you? All right, there's there's an assumption here, isn't there? Pay careful attention to all the flock. Well, what if they don't want to be paid attention to? Well, that's a problem. Now, let's face it. Some of us don't want to be paid attention to. 
Some of us love a church about this size because it's got a bunch of hiding places in it. If the church was much smaller than this, I couldn't hide and I wouldn't come. But this one's big enough to where I can hide. Most people don't know when I'm here and when I'm not here. They don't know whether I've signed up for a small group or not. They don't even know my name. And, you know, part of me says, well, that's not real friendly, but part of me kind of likes that. Because, you know, I don't, I don't want to have too many expectations on me. And I'm busy and I've got a lot going on. And I just want to pull in, get some stuff for the week, get my heart before God. And then I'm going to go on. I got, I'm busy. Okay, listen, uh, you do realize you're living a life that is making it hard for this passage to ever be true. Let's just suppose everybody lived their lives that way. Yeah, Paul gathers a group of people in Miletus and he says, hey, guys, pay careful attention to the flock. The guys in Miletus go, huh, that's easier said than done, Paul. They're like stinking moving targets, man. These guys don't hold still for a second. We can't get around them. Uh, but, you know, so how would you suggest we do that, Paul? That would be the question coming from here, right? So this is a leader and follower combo plate. We have a responsibility in being discoverable, in being knowable, in being able to be cared for. That's not just the leader's responsibility. But what is the watching over the flock include. And so I just want to highlight two things real quickly. Care for the church, he says, right? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, right? So first responsibility is to care for the church. And, and I make this point for the sake of those of us, and, and I include myself in this category, those of us who are very mission-minded, who are on, we're on a mission, right? We're on a mission. Church is a mission. We are, we are going after something for the glory of God. We are reaching people. We are eager to see this global effect that the gospel brings to people. You know, sometimes that creates an atmosphere where the people who come to the church to be cared for get to get stepped on. Because the goal is not to care for you, it's to mobilize you. That's the goal. We just want to mobilize you. We want to get you, want to get you doing for the sake of the kingdom. And so here's the reality. This is a mobilizing place. It is. Never apologize for that. If you don't get mobilized, you will not stay healthy as a Christian. If you don't get moving for the sake of the kingdom and advancing the kingdom and making disciples, you will not stay healthy. But it's also a hospital. You know, it's an infantry unit and it's also a hospital. So that there are some people that come in here uh, that need to be on some long-term treatment program because of their life, where they've come from, the things that they're sorting through, the issues, the confusion, the ways in which this whole God thing has never made sense to them, uh, the, the fear that they have to even be around people, being led. They're not interested in being led. They're scared to be led because every, every form of leadership in their life has been abusive. And they come into the church and everything that we highlight and love and hold dearly that God's convinced us about for years that it's taken him years to do, they have a resistance to because they're bleeding in certain locations in who they are. Do you know what those people need? They just need to be cared for. Care for, care for the flock. Care for people who are hurting and beat up and wounded and just dug their way out of the rubble of this world. And so there's a, there's a call for all of us to just simply care for people. Listen, it's not caring for people. What we talked about last week, when you 
thrust your opinions upon people. There are people who come into this setting, you don't know their background. You don't know how long it's going to take them to get up to speed to where when you nudge them with that opinion, it doesn't just knock them over. But you know, you have a responsibility to know them that way. It's real simple. It's just a responsibility to to think before you speak. There are people you don't know. And so we have this discussion as a team. Often, often, person comes in, they're, they're going through a particular situation. They're, there's a mixture of need and sin taking place in their life. There's some responsibility on their part, but there's some wreckage going on around them. And, and, and we have to kind of figure out how, how fast is this person moving? How, how, how much can we push in these areas? You know, a person who gets wheeled into the emergency room, bullet holes in them, just, just stopping the bleeding might be the biggest agenda right now. Let's, let's not figure out how we fix everything about this person yet. Let's just figure out if we can just stop the bleeding. Listen, that's what the church does. And we're responsible to care for people that way. Leaders are responsible to help that care to take place. Leaders are responsible to provide protection from particular dangers. And he highlights, I'm going to depart And fierce wolves will come in among you and they won't spare the flock. Fierce wolves are coming. And they're not going to spare the flock. Let me me just say this as a sidebar to to that comment. There is is some hidden protection in what Paul is saying right here. He's saying, listen, he's saying there are wolves. There are predators. There are bullies out there in the spirit world that... That quite honestly, they're not impressed and they don't care about how big your checkbook is. They don't care whether you're a person in society or not. They don't care whether you're influential, whether you think you can stand on your own two feet, whether you've never needed anybody to help you ever. Do you know who I am? You know what? They don't care who you are. They are spiritual predators. And before them, you are simply prey. That's all you are. Don't be too impressed with yourself. To them, you're just the next meal. And they are coming. And what Paul says is going to protect you in the day that they're coming are people that are seated here. We don't always feel you. We're big boys, right? We're big boys. We know a lot of stuff. We're pretty successful in a bunch of categories in life. Don't know that we need people protecting us. Do we need people protecting us, really? Well, Apparently, Paul thought so, so much so that he stops his journey to Jerusalem, puts the brakes on, goes through the trouble to call these leaders to himself to tell them, listen, in my departure, fierce wolves are going to come in among the people of God, and they're not going to spare the flock, and you need to be ready for them. So this group needs to hear that one way, but all of us need to hear this in some way. You know, this this... This is not to inflate the the pulpit or the person behind the pulpit, but I simply believe, because I think it's biblical, that that there is divinely ordained stuff coming into your life when you come in here on a Sunday morning. That you have no idea how just something, something that God gave the speaker, some illustration, some particular passage, some emphasis on that particular date of that particular morning finds its way into your particular life with your particular issues that you're facing in the next two weeks, and it was God's way of protecting the decision you're about to make.
And all of a sudden, you guys know what I'm talking about. Now I get enough emails back to know. You know, sometimes you're in the middle of something. I don't necessarily even know anything about it. But God said something in that meeting that met you exactly where you were. And it corrected you or it inspired you or it gave faith for something that was about to take place that, that you needed that. Now, let me just tell you, if you hadn't got that, you would have forfeited the protection that it offers. So, I mean, I don't know how the concept goes, you know. Wolves are coming in. You know what? We've got guys standing on the front yard there with, with guns. Wolves, huh? Got sharpshooters out in the front, armed dog catcher. You know, what do you feel better? You pull up, there's a dog catcher truck in the front of the church. What does this look like? There's wolves coming in. Well, those wolves uh, were going to be the bearers of ideas. That's what the wolves were going to be. They were going to be ideas. They were going to be ways of doing stuff. They were going to be influential because you heard them a hundred times and then you decided that's good for you too. It was a bad idea. The first hundred people who posted it on Facebook should have not done that. Somebody should have been discerning a long time ago, but they weren't. That's what's coming. Bad ideas are coming. And, and this, is a, this is a concern. This is a huge concern. I started this year off. Some of you guys remember the first service I think we had in the year was the weighty concern, the prophetic concern I had for the perilous times that were coming. Uh, I'm not less concerned about that. I'm more concerned now than I was then. And I don't think those perilous times involve some small couple of events that are going to happen in this calendar year. I think there's an installation of ways of thinking and doing life that are going to attack Christians in ways that you're not ready to identify. These ideas are going to come in. And, and they're going to come in not because they're taught from Scripture, but because they're reinforced among you. People are going to rise up from among you speaking these things, twisted ideas. Right, can I just give one example? And I'm going to stop. I know I'm right in an hour here. One example. Oz Guinness. You're not, never read anything by Oz Guinness. You have to develop a little bit of a taste for him, but once you do, you're going to love him. He's sort of like an intellectual prophet. I think he is actually given as a prophet to the church. But he's written a recent book called Renaissance. And he talks about these ideas in some ways that are affecting the church today. The title of his book is Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, No Matter How Dark the Times. And he talks about the darkness of the times in which we live. He, some of the, he says some of the worst forms of Western worldliness are obvious such as our rampant individualism, consumerism. And some are already doing pernicious damage in the global south. He means that globally of the, where God is moving. We're kind of in the west where it doesn't appear that God is moving the same way. He says, the vilest is the distortion of the gospel through American-style health and wealth theology. With its prosperity doctrines and their vicious exploitation of the unsuspecting poor. The logic and dynamics of this shameless twisting of the gospel run parallel to those of witchcraft and are equally distressing and outrageous. And I just picked that one quote for this reason. Most everybody in this room, having lived in America and been a Christian for very long, you have come in contact with that twisted idea. 
it's gone global. You know, it's one thing in America when, you know, you got excess income and you can invest it. You can rally in the stock market and you can create wealth to hawk this idea that that's ultimately what God wants you to do and learn how to do with your faith. But when you pick that idea up and you export it to Africa, which is what's happened, and you take it into villages where no one knows anything about luxury, their whole life is survival. There's no vast medicine world. There's no great resources. And you step into a village and you proclaim to them all the stuff and trinkets that you can have. It captures their attention. But not for the sake of the gospel. And not for the sake of the genuine, true need of their soul. It does for them what it does for us. It's like tempting children with candy. That idea came from somewhere. That idea is still around. Matter of fact, you, you might be okay with it. You might be kind of saying, hey, what's, what's up with this guy? Why is he criticizing that? It's a pernicious idea. It's a distortion of the gospel. And, and, and leaders are called to protect the church from those ideas. And as a matter of fact, you guys are going to hear a lot about that before most of us behind a pulpit are because you're sitting in your living room leading a small group, listening to somebody espouse doctrines that are not biblical. And you're called to protect them from those ideas. And so this is an important discerning role. Got way too much stuff. Uh, All right, let me just conclude with this thought. I've, I've asked these guys to sit in this location to separate them because they have a calling that's distinct. And it's, it's a serious call. It's an important call. And, and just for the sake of them and for all of us together here, it is one for which I am unbelievably grateful for each and every one of you. Let me just tell you something about the complications of raising up leaders. Leaders who are leaders tend to be leaders in all categories of their lives. And so typically, guys who are identified that they they could lead effectively in the church, they're already leading effectively in other places, which means they already have an unusual level of responsibility going on in their lives. And then they're asked to take on responsibility in the church as well. It creates a challenging and hectic and difficult and everything we just talked about lifestyle. It is hard work. It involves sacrifice, tears, and trials. Some of that, but not because we're being attacked all the time, just some because the the stinking schedule of being responsible can be grueling. And so... I want to finish our time today by praying for you guys in just a moment, but I I do so on behalf of the church in Ephesus, all all of you gathered in Miletus, deeply thankful for you and for your sacrifices, for the impact this has on your time, how you spend yourself, the fact that you'd be reading and studying things for somebody else's benefit, when I'm sure you'd rather read something else sometimes, that your family has to compete with schedules, so that you can serve the people of God that God loves, that God stopped Paul and said, remind these guys about these things. 
for they are indispensable in the purpose of God. So thank you on behalf of the church for all that you do to help us and care for our souls. This verse ends in an interesting way. Paul just got finished charging people and charging these leaders. And where he lands here in verse 32, he says, these fierce wolves are coming in among you. Pay careful attention. Observe the flock. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God, right? I put this little formula because I'm a formula thinker in your outline there. Last thing in your notes. This passage is about charging leaders with responsibility and commending the future to God's grace, resulting in sober responsibility dipped in peaceful hope. We have a sober responsibility for the role of leading others in the body of Christ. But we have this peaceful hope because ultimately we are commended to God's grace. The God who does not because we deserve for him to do. The God who does because in him is an abundance of mercy to do good to his people. So here's what I want us to do. I want you guys to just think and look for a moment. Look at these faces. Look at these guys. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. And as we pray for them, which I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope right now you're becoming aware that you don't. And let me install something that's a little helpful. How about about we commit to doing this? We do this for these leaders. We do this for every leader that exists anywhere. Because the Bible calls on us to pray for leaders. You know the Bible's more clear on us praying for leaders than it is on us criticizing leaders? I know that's not in the New American translation, but... How about, how about you commit to this? Don't criticize any leader that you've not spent any time praying for. I know that'll mess up your talk radio programs, but the Bible's clear. We're called to pray for these leaders. It's not an easy task. They will stumble. I will stumble. We won't do it right. It's not always because evil is the ultimate goal of anybody's life here. It's just because humanity is sitting amongst humanity. You're aware of your own issues and weaknesses. We got our own set, just different flavor than yours. But let's commit to pray for our leaders. So let me ask these guys if they would stand. You guys can remain seated, but if you would join your hearts with me, and as you just look around and you see maybe the Lord will put particular men and their wives on your heart to be holding on to, not just for this meeting, but for the future as well, and let's Go before the Lord together. Or when Paul stood in the midst of trials and opposition, hostile opinions and difficulty, Lord, it's in that moment where Paul got this revelation of a thorn in his flesh. This weakness 
that so affected him that he repeatedly asked you, God, would you take this away from me? Lord, would you change this? Please, please change this. And he learned, Lord, in that moment that strength was perfected in weakness. He saw and understood in those prayers that God was at work when it felt the most difficult, weighty, disheartening even. And he was able to turn in that moment, seeing that value, to stop asking for relief from the weakness, instead to celebrate the work of God in the weakness. Lord, I, I join with the church in praying that for these who are standing. Lord, to lead is to quickly come in contact with weakness. To quickly be aware of what I don't know how to do. The fear is that I'm going to do it wrong. And that what really matters, I'm not going to be able to do in a way that matters. The questions of whether I should be doing this at all circulate. Lord, for every moment when a leader looks arrogant, there's probably 10 moments when he's truly insecure. Lord, as we pray for these in our midst today, Lord, would you bring grace that is sufficient for the day of weakness? Lord, bring grace today that's sufficient to stand in the land of opinions. Lord, it feels like everybody's being graded. Lord, I pray for grace for leaders who feel graded by others. Lord, I pray for persistence as you spoke to Timothy. Obviously concerned, Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And you wanted him to persist in these things. Lord, we pray for these men and their wives to persist in leading. Lord, we need leadership in our lives. It is a means of grace to us. So, Lord, would you provide the ability to persist to those who are seeking to lead us? in this church. Lord, would you provide the blessing of a heart to serve, a heart that is surrendered, that doesn't have competing agendas pulling at it, a heart that is humble, knowing the liberty of not being self-concerned, but being a servant, not taking ownership in the wrong way. Lord, grace for times of tears and trials that will touch their lives tears that come out of concern for others, tears that come sometimes because they just feel like they can't keep up with everything. But we pray for grace for them. God, we pray for courage and discernment and grace to be readers and studiers and those who gather with other leaders and are sharpened in what they seek to do. Lord, we pray for grace to flow through these lives into our lives. Because, Lord, we live in dark times. And as Paul foresaw a day when fierce wolves would come in among the people of God, seeking to lead your people astray, Lord, we live in such a day today. God, you have charged leaders with running interference between the life of sheep and the wolves about us. 
So, Lord, we pray for power and grace and might. We pray for encouragement and strength and hope. Lord, we pray that you give us hearts as those walking with these men and women to care for them before we criticize them, to pray for them before we formulate an opinion of them. Lord, make us a church that you had in mind when you called these leaders to Miletus for the sake of the church in Ephesus. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Appreciate his leadership. Yeah. Yeah.